Alrighty, everybody, welcome to the Godcast episode 19. Uh, a quick, a few quick things before we get this episode started. Um, you can actually, uh, there's this very legendary episode now on our channel, the Baha'i Faith episode that I've been meaning to edit for a very long time. We have an, like an hour and a half, possibly two hours, I can't quite remember now, worth of, of a very, very good interview. Um, and that episode will be up. I think within the next week or two, I just haven't had time to edit it, but there's all this content about the Baha'i Faith. Secondly, uh, in the link of the, of the description, link, uh, linked in the description of both this episode and pretty much all other episodes, you can check out our YouTube channel by the exact same name. So if you're interested in that, uh, check it out right there. We post more stuff about comparative religion, specifically early Christianity. So that being said, uh, we would like to welcome Mr. Graham from the Theosophical Society to our show. We're very excited to have you. Thanks for having me. Very excited about this uh, religion because it's a. Ve- I think it's a very good way to sort of near the end of the season, which are, uh, because it, it's it's in many ways a culmination of lots of other religions that come beforehand. So, Ryland, would you like to take it away and ask the first question? So first, uh, we think it's best to make a clarification. Um, is the Theosophical Society a religion, a spiritual movement, or something else? Mm, I would actually probably call it something else. So it's uh, definitely not a religion. It's kind of more of a, like a society, I guess, is the, the best way to put it. That's why we're called the Theosophical Society. Um, it's more about people coming together to express their faiths and ideas and spirituality in a way that um, is open to everybody. So, like, basically our concept um, is just to delve into all possibilities and look at everything that's there so i wouldn't really call it a faith or a religion or anything like that it's more just kind of a uh, it's a society that allows us to examine all the different concepts out there interesting i think i can draw us to some degree a comparison between uh the unitarian universalist uh church which doesn't have an official creed now it's interesting because we've actually interviewed the the shakers we it's it's a very it's a very small religion now but i we were talking to the guy uh, the, the man and he's he said that there's um Possibly he's talking to someone who might actually join it, so they'll have three members. But um, they also have no, uh, um, well, um, no official creed, and we can talk about whether or not there is an official creed later. But I thought that was just a very interesting um, uh, point to kind of draw a comparison across different religions. So, so we do have kind of a uh, motto or a creed, I guess. Uh, So there is no religion higher than the truth, and that's kind of based on like we're not looking for. A religion or a system or something to believe in we're just looking for the truth to all the questions and that that's what theosophy is really at its core all about yeah i love that motto it's very interesting because uh the prophet zarathustra in uh, zoroastrianism it's very interesting about him was uh, voltaire who was one of the enlightenment philosophers uh so that he was the f- the prophet of the age and, and uh one of the reasons that people often philosophers liked him so much was because he um, prioritized truth. Uh, so that I thought that was a, kind of an interesting uh, similarity between um, the Zarathustra and what you said. But I very much like that. No religion is higher than truth. Yeah, yeah. Um, and even sometimes when you get deep into it, like truth can be subjective. So it gets kind of complicated there. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but like Zarathustra and that kind of stuff is definitely part of theosophy, like the roots of it. Uh, a lot of people look at that. So, and the early 
theosophists would have definitely been or influenced by those ideas. Uh, given that Noah is, is fortunately is unfortunately not here, uh, Rylan, do you want to also ask the oh. second question? All right, let's right. go. Um, all right, so here at the Godcast, we try to begin each interview with a quick historical context in order to make room for theological questions. So that being said, who are the founders of the society, and what would be a quick summary of their lives? Okay, so um, the most important founder, or most important, maybe not be the correct way, the most popular founder would have been Blavatsky, and uh, she was a Russian woman that was born of privilege in Russia in the 1800s, and um, kind of threw it all away, ran down through the Himalayas into India, and found what she called like the secret path or the divine plan. And um, when she, on those voyages, she like met some gurus that helped her uh, learn some techniques uh, that helped her out later in the future. So she traveled the world for a bit and then ended up in America. And that's when uh, her and Alcott and Judge started talking and they developed the society around that time. And it was kind of to look at like things like spiritualism was starting to get popular and all these ideas were starting to get popular and Alcott was like big into Buddhism. And so they were trying to bring these Eastern ideas to a Western civilization. And a lot of theosophy is kind of bridging that gap between Western or Eastern ideas in a Western language, because there is quite a bit of difference there sometimes. It's, it's interesting. Yeah, I think I think that's one of the things we'll talk about. Uh, one of the uh, es esoteric Buddhism is one of the, um, uh, I guess you could say to some degree, like the corpus, if you will, of the Theosophical Society. That would that, That's one of the books we wanted to touch on a bit later when talking about the theology of the religion. Yeah, and then, so that's the first movement of Theosophy is what I just described. And then there was a later movement after Blavatsky died of Annie Besant and Leadbeater. And Annie Besant was like this really powerful woman of her time. She uh, was the first woman to lead a workers union strike and she helped the kids making Matchbox in London strike. And then she uh, went to India and led a women's rights strike there. So like Blavatsky was this really powerful woman and she teamed up with uh, Leadbeater who was kind of a controversial figure. He caused some problems here and there, and he ran a thing called the uh, Liberal Catholic Church. And so he kind of had this idea and system, and him and Besant came, and they embraced Theosophy, and uh, they, so they kind of changed some things, like around their times, which would have been the early 1900s and 20s, they brought in the Liberal Catholic Church. So some Theosophists would identify as being part of the liberal Catholic Church or a Catholic kind of in a way. Um, so Theosophy kind of took a turn around that time. And then uh, Leadbeater and Blavatsky thought that they were going to find the world teacher. And they found this kid named Judah Krishnamurti and took him in and basically raised him to be this world teacher. And then when he came to that point, he dismissed it all, but in the way of dismissing it all, ended up having this pretty profound message and teaching. So, yeah, and that's kind of the basic history of uh, theosophy. 
I think there's three really interesting things to say. One of them was that uh, Besant, I believe that she, uh, her husband or father, he was a, I believe, a Methodist minister. Am I correct in in England? Yeah, I believe so. And she actually ended up being the head of the atheist movement before Theosophy. So she just was this really interesting kind of pragmatic person. I would feel sometimes like she liked to push, you know, the norms and see what was really out there. Yeah, she's an interesting character. I think the liberal Catholic Church. I think I think it's it's important to make a distinction that the liberal, like uh, for our listeners, that the liberal Catholic Church is not a uh, is a li- is a liberal version of um, Christianity in the sense that it has more so-called esoteric uh, views. It's more it's more of a spiritual as has a more spiritual edge than um, perhaps just. Yeah, then I guess you could say uh, conventional Catholicism or Christianity. And then um, the, the the boy who you talked about, who grew up and who eventually uh, dismissed the world teacher um, uh, position, I, I've, I've seen many videos of him on YouTube talking about philosophy, so he obviously became a great uh, philosopher, of, or of at least a very well-respected one of the 20th century. His name is, uh, yeah, like you said, Jaidu. I can never pronounce his last name. I can never uh, remember it either. Jiddu Krishnamurti, yeah, he's uh, he has his own foundation that still exists today. I thought, so I thought that was uh, that was important to mention there. Yeah, he's a um, he's an interesting character because he was taken as a kid from his parents to become this world teacher. Uh, it kind of actually caused some controversy, and Leadbeater already kind of had some controversy in the past uh, as he ran some boys' schools and kind of upset some parents at those times so yeah uh that whole story is really interesting he uh it, it i don't know if you guys talked much about like eastern ideas so like the, the idea of a guru taking a child when they're young isn't like too unfamiliar in india and like those parts of the world so it was kind of a, a thing that wasn't looked about about as bad but then maybe eventually kind of may have kind of gone awry, but then Krishnamurti in the end ended up being this really like insightful teacher and taught a lot of like, has a lot of profound ideas and how to look at things. Um, he's actually probably the theosophist, him and Blavatsky are the two that I read the most and influence my life the most. Well, I think it's just fascinating to think that you know you be you are picked as a as, as a child as a, to become the leader of an of, of an entire movement, and then I think another thing that, to mention about him as well, it's very interesting. Like when you watch him talk, he talks very slowly. Like it's 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 a very it's a it's a very mesmerizing kind of a kind of cadence to his speech, which I thought was worth mentioning. If you um, for our listeners, if you care to look 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 him up online, it's a very interesting way that he speaks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's great. And his books are really great, too. Easy to read and pick up and digest. Blavatsky can be a little bit tougher to digest. She's a stream of information in her writing, so <laughs> all intense. <laughs> uh, Balin, do you want to ask question number three? Yes, uh, thank you. So, the Theosophical Society's doctrine has often been described as a combination of Neoplatonism, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Sufism. Are these labels correct, and what other existing religions or spiritual traditions can be fa- found in uh, Theosophy? So, Theosophy is kind of tricky. Um, I would say that 
all of those things you said are correct. They are all part of theosophy. Uh, Judge, one of the founding members, wrote in a book that a theosophist shouldn't claim a religion. So Judge was one of the original members. And he said that a theosophist shouldn't claim a religion. The only religion suitable would be masonry. So a lot of um, theosophist ideas and teachings are actually from like the mystery schools. And so if you understand that, then you kind of understand how all the religions kind of get melded into it because uh, our ideas are coming from the, like Blavatsky would say, like the conscious stream of the divine or the, the divine plan, I guess is the way she would have put it. Uh, so a lot of this is hard to say like, oh yeah, we're taking it from Sufis because maybe the Sufis learned something from somebody earlier and it's all just part of the divine plan. Uh, certainly. Um, I was, I mean, I was going to say something. Um, yes. In terms of the mystery schools, do you mean things like, you know, Mithraism? Um, do you, do you mean like, like as in the ancient, yes, the ancient schools like Mithraism or rather cults, although that term has a, has a very negative connotation nowadays, but the, the ancient mystery religions like Mithraism, Bacchus, um, and, uh, Isis and Osiris and so forth. Very fascinating. Yeah. So that's definitely like, um, parts of it, like heavily parts of it. Like there's a lot of people who are part right now of it that are into like hermeticism. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Very, it's very fascinating. Yeah. So, um, but that, but you don't have to believe those things to be theosophists. So like, like Judah Krishnamurti, he picked up all that. Like, so he was forced to go through all those rituals and be a Mason and like do those things. But in the end he said, why? Like, we don't need these things to, like, understand. Like, once we learn everything, then we can throw it all away and be with it. Like, um, yeah, he's a, a lot of his teachings, which is interesting because Blavatsky was not the, that way. Like, she was very much into the deep esoteric arts and trying to figure things out. But in the end, like, Judah Krishnamurti kind of says, like, it's it's for you to decide and for you to see and for you to look and just kind of throw away your morals and dog not morals but throw away your dogmas and your superstitions and just be i uh when you mentioned hermeticism i laughed and smiled because it, it i think it's very rare that someone mentions hermeticism which is this you know ancient very ancient art i mean some people have even claimed that i shouldn't say art actually it's a vast corpus of things like philosophy magic even with the umbrella of magic you have alchemy and so forth i mean and some people even claim that hermes trismegistus the the legendary or real founder depending on uh, how liter literally you want to take things was the teacher of moses so it's a it's a very interesting um philosophy and um practice and movement in general yeah, definitely. And when you start to look at, like, so, like, Hermeticism, people might be like, oh, Western magic, weird ritual stuff. You know, they get caught up with the OTO or, like, Thelema. But really, yeah. the deep essence of it is to Egypt. Like, the mystery schools come from Egypt. And, like, Hermes Trismegistus would have been Thoth or Dehut in Egypt. And he was, like, the bringer of language and knowledge. So these... These ideas, uh, I guess the Baha'i kind of talk about this a little bit, where each cycle of humanity, a new teacher comes to give the message for those people. So like the mystery schools are kind of the secret schools for us to learn 
when the time is right for us and then they are unlocked. So, you know, for people who are seeking these things, they can find it when they learn how to unlock the doors and then, but for the rest of people who don't need to understand some things, like they can still be hidden. Uh, yeah, because that's one thing, uh, there's a term called the hero fan, which is kind of like the gatekeeper on the tarot deck. And I feel like theosophy is the, the hero fan. Like, uh, I work at the library personally, so like, I feel like each book is a key to somebody unlocking something, and I hold the keys so I can, you know, I give the keys out to people. I'm like, here, you know, here's a way to open this door or that door. But like, they may not know until they come and ask, and I can help direct, like, which direction. Because everybody's spiritual path is totally different. So like, they may read some things and understand a concept but somebody else may read it in another way and understand the same concept. Uh, certainly, and I think I want to hand it over to Ryland so he isn't just you know s- s- standing over there. But you know, yeah, do you, do you want to do you want to expound upon that? How like you know um, the the belief is that the and I think what we can maybe talk about this later. I, my understanding is that the belief is that uh, the the city of At- of Atlantis, which um, uh, I, if I'm if I'm correct about this, um, this is one of the theosophical um, be- beliefs um, to some extent that. The um, that information was transmitted to Egypt and then other parts of the world. Is that uh, is is that correct? And then um, Balin, if you wanted to add on to that after uh, after Mr. Graham gives like a reply to that, yeah. Yeah, sure. So um, Atlantis is definitely part of the lore, uh, and we they even talk about before Atlantis is Lumeria, which is another cycle. So um, I don't know. The Atlantis story is interesting because it gets kind of lost in time some way I guess uh, so like I've heard it where yeah I gave Egypt knowledge but I've also heard like Quetzalcoatl from uh, Mexico was from Atlantis so like Atlantis is just kind of one of these things that gives away the lore uh, yeah and I don't see that's the interesting thing about theosophy is they suck in all this lore but really the, the true core of theosophy is to find the truth in the lore so the Atlantis story is part of it but I don't know like not every theosophist I know even comes close to believing that so yeah certainly there's lots of I think there there is just uh, a plethora of evidence for say like the Bible as an example um, especially the book of Genesis and I think a lot of, a lot of people don't understand what the Gospels is that if you read those um, it might read like a historical account, and it's just, I mean, you, you could certainly take it that way, but there's, even within something as seemingly literal as the Gospels, there's so much to unpack there at a theological and literary level. It's very, it's very amazing. Uh, Balin, did you want to add on to uh, your, any comments on Egypt and Atlantis? Well, now, although people are familiar of Atlantis being from some form of Greek origin, coming from, uh, I can't remember which philosopher, was it? Possibly Plutarch. I could be wrong. Well, he wasn't a philosopher, but he was a. Uh, uh, I think Plato. I believe Pla- Plato. I, I believe Plato had this. I think it's from the Odyssey, is when it was referenced, but or something like that. But I could be wrong about that. I could, well, I could be wrong about this, but I think I, if I remember correctly, there was a guy named Solon who was the leader of of Athens, and I think uh, he knew Plato, and, and Plato had like this. Um, according to legend, he had this. I could be messing up the legend totally, but I, I remember from something I heard quite a while ago that that either Plato or Solon had this, like, piece of writing that was in Plato's family that somehow 
supposedly dated back to Atlantis, but Herodotus, I believe, mentions Atlantis, among other things, including Aram of the Pillars, which is this um, legendary or literal place, depending on uh, whether you want to take the um, accounts of Herodotus and the accounts of the Koran literally. It's a very interesting um, uh, so-called lost world as well, but I thought that was interesting to, to mention. Oh, I was just merely going to mention that it was in fact said to be originating from the annals of history found in Egypt, which that philosopher had learned from. Yes. I don't want to bog us too down, too far down on Atlantis. I think that's an interesting thing among others to to come up uh, soon. So I'll uh, push the interview forward. Uh, Ryland, do you want to ask question number four? Awesome. So we hope to unpack the doctrine of the religion that's unique to it and it alone. Um, so, I, so we understand that the faith is predicated upon the teachings of several masters, including Jesus and the legendary Count um, the Saint Germain. Uh, oh, Saint Germain. Uh, so, who are these masters, and how do they contribute to uh, recovering the true ancient religion of the world that uh, Theosophists believe that was lost over time? Okay, so um, the masters, the ones that you guys actually cited, would be considered adepts and i would accredit them more to masonry uh theosophy does have two people they call the masters kuhumi and mayora and kuhumi and mayora were two hindu uh babas that blavatsky met on her travels through the himalayas and um what they did was they trained her how to telepathically communicate with them so that when she came to the americas her books, Isis Unveiled and The Secret Doctrine, all her writings are from them through telepathic channels uh, that she brought in. Um, yeah. I, so, and then the mayor and Kuhumi also communicated with AP Senate, and that's where the Mahatma letters come from. And they're a series of writings that are uh, channeled by the, these masters. And so, the, the idea of the masters isn't just strictly theosophy. So like in uh, like Buddhism and Hinduism and masonry, there's an idea that people become enlightened, like to a point to where they kind of transcend this concept of life and we go to more of like a higher teacher place. So they can transcend time and boundaries. They can uh, affect change at certain times they can give people messages um they kind of become like workers for the spirit i guess like maybe in christianity they might call it like an angel but the masters and the adepts are more human form than an angel because angels do get brought up in theosophy like as light beings and um, those kind of concepts so the adept is kind of in between a full spiritual entity and a human entity and they're just yeah, people that influence. So there is the two masters, Kuhumi and Maori, that are strictly theosophy, but like Saint Germain and uh, Buddha and uh, other people are from other sources. They just, theosophy has looked at them and kind of brings in their ideas. Ryan, you want you want any, any comments? Um, well, yeah, I, I find that kind of interesting. Like, you would also include Jesus in that list too, but not... Obviously not strictly from theosophy, but would Jesus also be considered like part of that group? Yeah, Jesus would definitely be an adept. Like, um, so anybody who 
presents a higher spiritual message than the common person has at the time. I guess would be considered an adept. So like people who can help bridge the gap to the next level of conscious progression are adepts. Um, there's an interesting book by Manly Hall who isn't a theosophist, but he's theosophist friendly. And like it's called The Secret Doctrine of America. And he talks about certain people coming around at times and maybe not even consciously understanding like what they're doing, but they bring up ideas that influence somebody else that ended up influencing like the constitution and all these concepts. So there's these people who are, yeah, they're, they're kind of in between this like human and spiritual world. It's a, it's an interesting thing. I think, I think certainly the, uh, the human and spiritual world uh, that, um, that cosmology will come up, um, in a later question. So it's just great that you asked that so we can kind of tie that into a, a later one. So, um, Rowland, would you like to ask uh, question number five? Yes. So, um, what's the summary of the main doctrines of the ancient first religion that theosophists believe human beings initially practiced and how is that lost over time? Hmm. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, just, that's an interesting one because like the way we approach the first of all this is like it wasn't humans that first became aware. It was like there was the Godhead and the Godhead did not know that it was the Godhead. And then at one point the Godhead understood that it was the Godhead and from that all things come. And so like, I guess that would be the true ancient religion of all religions because that's kind of the, the, the source of uh, all spirituality. Like where did we come from and what is the purpose so I guess that's kind of yeah what what theosophy would say about it and they like because theosophy is a society that talks about things people may describe that differently within our society so like Leadbeater and Basant would have been more kind of into like um, Masonic ideas and using that symbolism whereas Blavatsky and Alcock may have used more Eastern and Buddhist ideas and those words Fascinating. Um, so I'll ask question number six, then I'll turn over the microphone to Balin to ask question number seven after that. Uh, so some have boiled uh, theosophy down to four main concepts, including the concepts of uh, root races, the idea of a cosmic cycle called around the concept of um, the seven rays that can be found in many religions, as, as a matter of fact, and uh, theosophical mysticism. So what are these concepts, and are there any other main tenets that should be uh, explained in order to help better understand the core beliefs of theosophy. Yeah, so um, I'll start with the first one. Root races is, uh, it kind of gets misinterpreted kind of a bit because it it comes from some interesting sources. Uh-oh. Okay. Uh, uh, so root races come from kind of uh, maybe the same concept of evolution. So like the idea, like when we were in the first root race, we were minerals in the earth. And then as our spirits because it it ties back to um reincarnation so like our spirits were basic in the root race and then as they evolved became the next root race which would have been like animals and then so plants or plants then animals and then us and so uh that's kind of the idea of the root race it's like as time evolves so does our spirit 
but our spirit kind of takes on new things, so that's why we can't remember the past and kind of, yeah, we, we're ever changing forward. Um, yeah. Fascinating, and um, I, one of the... I, I, one of the things that I was reading in, in an article um, was that there were these uh, lost continents. Uh, what what uh, to add on to the root races? So what are those lost continents, and um, are these meant to be taken figuratively, or as you've said in the past, as lore to help us understand the higher truth? Well, the lost continents would have been Lumeria and Atlantis. So yeah, um, I don't know. They're uh, they they're they're written as historical. But, I mean, they're Lumerian Atlantis before humans. <laughs> um, and then uh, to go over to the next uh, the next concept, uh, which is the idea of a cosmic cycle called a round. That sounds very interesting because in, in Shia Islam, um, I, I think uh, especially the more quote-unquote mystical um, ends of that or branches of that um, religion, there's... Like such as such as Smilism as an example, which is a really fascinating religion. I hope that we can eventually try to do an interview with the Smileys because I think that'd be a very interesting one. They use Neoplatonism as well as um, Theosophical Society, but in um, and also in, in twelve or parts of twelve or Shia Islam as well. There's this concept that each of the days of the um, each of the days of creation correspond with the day of the week, and each day of the week has a different um, prophet and a different scripture and a different community so are rounds kind of similar to this are these different times in which a prophet or a manifestation appears um and uh how does that how does that whole concept work yeah um i guess yeah different times different things manifest through the time um a lot of tied to astrology uh the cosmic rounds yeah I that's kind of a it is just the cycle of time and it like Blavatsky talked about things and she has like a whole system but some people I think kind of look at it different but everybody kind of understands that like um, it's like built on itself you know like things kind of come back always like uh, life and death like that's just a cycle like you live from things dying and like when you die things will live from you so that's kind of the cosmic rounds and then you just start to look at everything kind of goes through cycles and you can kind of watch it like we just had a talk at our lodge about or at the library about um the mayan calendar and it kind of talks about the same quantum rounds but it's going more into the idea that like energy waves for each time period are different and so those different energy waves interact with the way we are and causes different things to happen so during a trough of the energy wave we may have more negative where a peak we may have more positive and so the cycle the cosmic round cycle things kind of go into those ideas uh fascinating and then the seven rays that can be found in many religions how do those play into the uh into the theology uh, i think the seven rays are just kind of something that's very like common in everything so they picked it up as like this is one of the truths you know like they've um they just kind of used it. I'm not like super memorized the rays and the cycles and cause that's kind of like Blavatsky's ideas on things. I wouldn't like, so theosophy in general may not use that as like, this is theosophy, but like Blavatsky says, these are theosophical ideas. And that's kind of how that works out. Certainly. And then in terms of theosophical mysticism, um, how does that also play into the theology? 
Well, the, I mean, a lot of it is that Blavatsky got her teachings from two of the mystics, Kuhumi and Mayora. So, I mean, that's kind of a big part of it. I think a lot of people who are already on their own mystic journeys find theosophy because it's kind of a way to help their journeys. Um, yeah, so mysticism, I think, is just the, the type of people who are drawn to what theosophy is. Fascinating. And uh, Balin, did you like? Would you like to ask uh, question number seven, which uh, talks a little bit talks a little bit about Neoplatonism? So, um, Neoplatonism, the latest continuation of Plato's school, deals with many ideas, including reincarnation. Do does reincarnation and the concept of incarnations appear in Theosophy, and if so, how? Yeah, definitely. So, um, a lot of people in theosophy believe in reincarnation, and then there's the concept of those cycles. So, like, we all kind of, like, our soul is constantly an energy that never dissipates. So, like, our soul is constantly reincarnated, but, like, my body is not. Um, And that's kind of a big part of theosophy's reincarnation, is that, like, um, this is maybe not coming from a straight theosophy idea, but this is an easy way to explain it. Like our soul and consciousness is an energy that is always in the universe. And every time that energy is released, it goes somewhere and it just keeps going to these different cycles. So it's released out of this being and into a next, next being. And so like the root races were like your first soul was released from the, the rock and then it became the plant. Like, it's if you're doing your work in life your soul keeps getting kind of bumped up or it has to relearn but it's this energy that is always released and then comes back to where it belongs and so the even back to the adepts their souls were released from their physical body but then came back to the next form which is kind of in between you know the physical and the non-physical fascinating many you know many uh, philosophers like of, of antiquity up until um the i believe uh, you could say well up until i i think to, to many degrees up until um the fifth century uh, believed in reincarnation you had uh pythagoras is probably the most uh famous philosopher who made it a big point that yes indeed reincarnation existed um, and then he also had plotinus uh who was who was the uh the uh, the luminary of neoplatonism and his uh his academy, well, Plato's academy existed for like 800 years after his death, and um, Plotinus was the guy who pretty much started Neoplatonism, although he learned it from his teacher beforehand, and Neoplatonism went up until uh, the 5th century, and Justinian closed down all the schools, but then what actually happened was those, uh, the, the teachings of the Neoplatonic schools, given that the philosophers went to went to Syria, um, it certainly seems like there's a connection between, um, you know, m- now Muslim thinkers taking in Neoplatonic ideas, and then applying them to Islam. And in fact, some Muslim thinkers actually believe in reincarnation, probably as a result of Neoplatonism. So I thought that was a, an interesting thing to mention there. Yeah, definitely. And that's back to the mystery schools. So like, these knowledges have always been known by people. And sometimes, like, maybe somebody doesn't like what they're hearing. So they try to shut down these knowledges, and they go underground, and then they pop up in weird places. Like, you know, I mean, it's not weird that it popped up within the Muslims, but they, they're hidden through the secret channels of spirituality. And like theosophy is just kind of a place to 
maybe collect all those secret hidden channels in one place. Um, Freemasonry is kind of the same concept. So that that's kind of the hard part about theosophy is we can't really say like it all came from this or that. It just kind of came from the divine source is what the, the main statement would be, I guess. Well, something I just wanted to add really quickly before we, uh, before I ask the, uh, this question, we kind of continue the cycle of who asks what questions. We have sort of an order for that at the beginning of the page. But um, what I think was very fascinating is that um, the there was these scholars who were talking about the historical Jesus, and what they realized was that his life fits this kind of cultural and religious archetype that was floating out in the ether that went to him and other people like it's it's the it's the sort of dying rising god archetype and uh, among other things as well like you have apollonius who i'm currently reading this book this really fascinating book by the amazing new testament scholar bart ehrman and and, and he talks about the incredible similarities between apollonius who is a um a a, Pythag- a pythagorean philosopher who existed in the um in, in antiquity and it's not necessarily that the story of Apollonius was a ripoff of the story of Jesus, or the story of Jesus was a ripoff of the story of Apollonius, um, but rather it was, It's. I, I certainly think it's more likely that although Apollonius's written volumes did come um, probably about 200 or more years, at the, very, at the very least, after the Gospels, it seems to me and to other people that these came from a sort of um, strand, sort of strands of cult, of cultural and religious trends floating out in the Hellenistic world. So I thought that was an interesting um, comparison to what you were saying. Yeah, definitely. And like Jesus, right? So Jesus is an interesting character, or not character, I guess that's not a good way to say it, but um, deity, person, teacher. Uh, so like the sun kind of was what the ancients got their idea of reincarnation from because every day the sun dies and then it is resurrected in the morning. So like Jesus is the sun, right? He's the son of God. So he dies and is resurrected. But also like Jesus is the word and like the word is the spoken vibration, like your vocal cords vibrate. So Jesus is the vibration of like the cosmic change of consciousness. And he's just this, this whole character of like, like more than just a human that walked the earth that taught these messages. He actually has deep, like esoteric meanings. When you put him up to the symbolisms of like the mystery schools of Freemasonry, like Jesus all of a sudden starts taking on these different characteristics and becomes actually a deeper, deeper person teacher because he is no longer just the human he becomes like a spiritual concept and so like theosophy looks at kind of like that stuff like so we don't reject the idea of jesus at all but we look at jesus and like what is jesus like what are the truths of jesus and then we start to find things so like some of the truths are that hey he's the son and he died and came back just like our sun in the sky or he's the word which is a vibration just like we believe that like vibrations can change us like we do total chantings during meditations and bring in those ideas so like like yeah a theosophy is all about how to kind of take like one person's ideas and then match it against everybody else and realize like what is the truth of all that Certainly, and if you do a, a non-literal reading of the Gospels, you get some very fascinating things, not only 
well, not only the Gospels, but if you if you look into the the Pauline epistles, it's a very obvious correlation between the mystery schools and what in the church that Paul was a part of. But if you read the Gospels from a non-literal standpoint, what you're going to see is you're going to see these really fascinating um, literary things show up. I mean, the Gospels are about about irony. It's a reversal of expectations. The last shall be first, the first shall be last. Those who uh, grieve now will be comforted later, or rather mourn now will be comforted later. Those who are comforted now or rejoice now will mourn later. But also, if you look, if you look at like the life of Jesus, you have um, this very brilliant scholar. He doesn't. This guy doesn't think that Jesus existed, but I've listened to lots of his stuff, and he's he's really opened my eyes to the figurative implications and the Old Testament parallels or Hebrew scriptures parallels between Jesus and um, between the Gospels and the, the Tanakh or the uh, Hebrew Bible. But you have things like James and John say to Jesus, we'll, you're the son of man, we're going to be with you at your right and your left. When Jesus is crucified, he's crucified between two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And then you have Peter says he'll be with Jesus, uh, he'll you know die with him and so forth. Yet what actually happens is that um, Peter's Simon Peter, well, Simon of Cyrene, another Simon, winds up carrying Jesus' cross to the hill. Um, all, the, all the male disciples say, we're going to be with you until the end. They abandon him, and then what happens? The female disciples see his tomb. So it's just a really fascinating way to read the Gospels. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I find it interesting because, like, um, like with Theosophy, you get to meet all kinds of interesting people that come in working at the library. And, um, like, a lot of Satanists will come in and, like, talk about how, like, Oh, Satan was the rebel that stood up to God. And I'm always like, man, Jesus is like actually the biggest rebel. Like he died for his cause. Like he stood up against the man to say like, here is the message. And yeah, like sacrificed everything, his life for what he believed in. And yeah, I've always kind of really admired him. And I kind of, it's funny, I find him to be a rebel. And every time I see like these big churches kind of like, want to get all pushy with things i'm always just like man what would jesus think he'd be such a like what are you doing you know like yeah i uh, i i actually was raised pretty christian so i have a pretty christian faith background i mean yeah he's uh he's he's bigger than the page i mean i i i, I don't want to be misquoting something that is um a, a false quotation but i'm pretty sure it's 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 true. It's like I believe that Albert Einstein actually said that um, Albert Einstein, who who's Jewish, he was reading the Bible and he said, you know, um, Jesus is, is he called him the Nazarene. The Nazarene is too big uh, for the pages, and I think that's um, that's a very excellent description of Jesus. And like you said, he's a he he was a radical um, for his time. I mean, he was. It, it, you can put whatever label uh, you want on him, whether he was a liberal Pharisee, a, a Stoic uh, philosopher, a Cynic philosopher, the first feminist, you name it, you can put all those labels on him, but it's it's very undeniable that he was ahead of his time in his time. So I think that, that, that's that's good common ground to make there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, like, and, you know, that's what theosophy is looking for, is, like, we're not trying to discredit somebody's idea. We're trying to find what the truth in their idea is. Certainly, and then um, I, I think um, to get to those texts of theosophy, to get to the really uh, specific um, parts of the canon, I know I was going to say, I was going to do this question, but, you know, Ryland, do you want to ju jump in here and do that? So I don't want to just make you wait over there. Yep, and then Balin, you can ask question number nine, since I've talked quite quite copiously, I think is the term. All right, so uh, theosophy has many fascinating texts, such as uh, Isis Unveiled and Esoteric Buddhism, to name a few. Um, what are some notable doctrines found in these books, and how did they come about? Hmm. So, well, a lot of it is just, yeah, like, 
like esoteric Buddhism really is just Buddhism brought in a Western language. So they're using terminology and understanding that maybe somebody coming from a Christian background could understand and kind of bridging that gap because there's not a big difference between the two except the wording and the the way things are spoke of is kind of confusing between the two. And then um, Isis Unveiled is kind of a different thing. So anything that Blavatsky wrote is kind of like she just downloaded all the information that she had. Um, they say it comes from Kuhumi Mayora. Uh, you know, there's times that I find it hard to believe, but then I read her teachings and I'm like, how did this person know that much at this time before Google? So, uh, yeah, the the whole anything written by Blavatsky is just kind of a like maybe writing down all the concepts, whereas things from like esoteric Buddhism or thought forms from Annie Be- Annie Besant, um, they're more ideas and concepts from people to explain things. So like yeah, I would say like Isis Unveiled and the Secret Doctrine are kind of they have it all there, but they're just kind of like a lot to take in at once, so they're a little harder to digest. Yeah, so it reminds me of the Bob, uh, B-A-B, except there's an accent uh, for the A of the Baha'i faith. The guy could write a an inhuman amount of writing. It was absolutely a- a- incredible. I think uh, some of, yeah, some of his stuff, I w- would assume it's probably as a result of, you know, how much he wrote, because I can't think of me for any other reasons, because the Baha'i faith is very wide uh, spread, so it's not like they're just like, oh, we're just not going to translate this because no one's going to care about it. No, it's a huge religion, but he wrote so much that some of it, I think, as a result of this, isn't even translated. There's like the Persian buy-in and the Arabic buy-in, and the Arabic buy-in isn't uh, fully into English yet, so it's a, uh, I think that's that's an interesting comparison. It's like almost like a stream of consciousness, but it's, um, but it's a religious text. Yeah, anything from or from uh, Blavatsky is like a stream of consciousness. It may not even really kind of follow a concept or a path that you can understand. It worked for her, and she knew what she was saying, but it's just like a lot of information. So, uh, yeah, her stuff's a little harder to read. Um, there is a good book by her called The Keys to Theosophy, and it's kind of done in a format like this, question and answer, and you get a little bit better understanding of like what she was trying to do when you start to read if you just try to dial dive into uh isis unveiled you just be like eyes glossed over within the first chapter be like i don't like this is so insane <laughs> yeah and then um and then going into as i as you spoke about before you talk about the spiritual world and the um where the the in the non-spiritual world uh um, and I think um, I think an interesting thing was that in the ancient times it was it was a belief that the two would cross over all the time. You'd have gods appear um, on on Earth, and there's many quite just to some degree quite frequently. And there's many examples of that in uh, Greek and Roman uh, re- religion. But um, I can't remember is it Balin or Rylan who uh, is going to ask the question next? You want to do the next one? Yeah. All right, let's uh, talk about theosophical cosmology. What does theosophical theology actually look like? Cosmology. Yeah. Cosmology. Sorry. No, don't worry. So I don't know if it really has a look to it. Like it, it's, theosophy is just really kind of open. Like when it comes to those kind of things, like there's no like right way to do it or wrong way to do it. It's because it's more of like the society. So it like 
it's more about just having a conversation about those things and like what kind of things do we bring like each person bring to the table um some of the earlier like stuff like so the first newspaper or periodical was called the light or the light bearer which is actually light bearer means lucifer or lucifer means light bearer so like that is kind of a big concept of it um whereas like i don't know if you guys have gone kind of into that idea of things too much but yeah um but yeah it, it it's just really kind of open like a lot of people are like buddhist so there's a lot of the buddhist terminology comes up and that those ideas um but i wouldn't say there's like a strict thing to anything with it and uh, on this topic of cosmology uh, i guess sort of rhyming with it what um what does theosophical eschatology look like mm, i guess i don't know really what that word means so i'd have a hard <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just eschatology is just a very fancy word for saying um end, end times that that it's just like how does the how does the how does the end times look is there gonna is there gonna be like in uh you know christianity there's the second coming of jesus in uh many forms of judaism the messiah um in uh is islam uh, al-mahdi shows up to um and there's many different um interpretations of how he appears uh, and I, I think i believe in uh ahmadiyya islam he actually appears appears in a very specific area he descends like to a, a tower in damascus or something to that degree i'd have to uh check up on that the specifics of that so how uh is there some sort of end of the world type event or is it more um like how the baha'is interpret just a new age yeah more of a new age so we like technically we just went into a new age with uh, aquarius like so astrology is kind of part of theosophy a lot of theosophists study astrology so people talk about yeah we entered the new age of aquarius um, yeah, well, that whole idea of everything's a cycle, so there isn't really an end. Like, one end is the new beginning. So, um, yeah, I guess a good, also a good point is, like, with the uh, concept of Lucifer, right? So a lot of people get turned off because it's kind of a scary word. But so the lore behind Lucifer is that we were once in the blackness of God. So like God is all possibilities that have not been explored and all potentiality. And it wasn't until Lucifer shined its light upon us and gave us form to those potentialities that all of a sudden we've gained conscious. So like Lucifer has kind of entrapped us in a consciousness because we are no longer one with the possibility of infinite. And now we have like form to what was once infinite. It's the same idea of when consciousness started like god was unaware of itself and then when it became aware of itself all things came forward so like i think that's an, a really big like thing that a lot of people in theosophy talk about they they may not say lucifer but like blavatsky and uh alcott and judge were saying those kind of things that's that wow that is very that is very profound that's that's a very interesting concept and i'm not just saying that to say oh that's interesting no seriously that's incredibly fascinating uh carl young i've been really for a very long time meaning to read his stuff been kind of afraid to because i don't want to i don't know if it's like just super it's not super uh super uh, hard to read okay um but awesome i'm a huge young fan so yeah like, he's great I've been meaning to read his stuff, and I think that there is some sort of uh, parallel, like uh, quite perhaps a quite strong with with what you said. And I know that Young 
will you know analyze certain biblical passages and uh, and the, the concept of God in, in the Hebrew scriptures as an example. I believe that he says that this is sort of the underdeveloped psyche, um, and then this this emerges into something else. I could be incorrect. And he has also analyzed stories, at least some stories in the Quran. He was very inter- interested in Gnosticism as well, and he's I would presume analyzed stories there. But he's done a lot of work on the Bible. So I'm given that you've suggested them, I guess that that's kind of pushed me over the edge now. I'm, I'm really, uh, I think, I think after I listened to this book by Bart Ehrman, I'll have to try to check out his stuff. Yeah, definitely. And, and the interesting thing about Jung is he takes these religious concepts and then compares them to people who have mental illness. So he started, like he created the idea of the archetypes where like people with mental illness had similarities within like people who were schizophrenic and hallucinating would talk about the devil or talk about the divine feminine so like there's these things and then he looked at mythology of the world kind of like through a theosophical idea and realized like all these things are in myth and so like he started to ask like are these people who have mental illnesses bringing in these myths because that's how they were taught to communicate these problems or is this mental illness a gap between something deeper that we don't understand and so a lot of his work is kind of into that, like, ideas and, like, how dreams interact with who you are. And, yeah, he's, uh, Jung's really interesting and really popular with theosophy, too. Fascinating. And returning to the historical uh, side of theosophy, um, Rylan, would you like to ask question number 11? All right. All right. So returning to history, uh, the society split into two groups, uh, each with, with a founding member at the head. So could you tell us why this happened and what are some core doctrinal differences between the two groups? Okay, so um, yeah, I kind of touched on this earlier with Judah Krishnamurti. So um, when Blavatsky died, Basant took over, but Alcott went with the, they're the Fellowship, Rosicrucian Fellowship. And so Alcott and the Rosicrucian Fellowship actually came out here to the West Coast and kind of set up their things. And they were more into like the secret, uh, the mystery schools and like Masons and stuff. And the other splinter group was Basant and Leadbeater and they did the um, Judah Krishnamurti. And Leadbeater kind of had tensions with Alcott and stuff. So there was kind of a rift between them because Leadbeater was more his teachings are more about like clairvoyance and looking at things psychically. Um, a lot of people kind of talked about him as a fraud or a charlatan. And so Alcott and the, the original people kind of separated themselves. Although the main Theosophical Society, I feel, comes more from the Leadbeater Basant side of things. So um, yeah, like if you went to like uh, the Alcott Center in Wheaton, Illinois, you would definitely be experiencing more the the lead beater Annie Besson side than the uh, Alcott um, uh, Rosicrucian Fellowship ideas. Interesting, um, yeah, because there's, I know there's a huge library in, in Wheaton, Illinois. Am I correct? Like twenty five thousand books. Fascinating. And we have a big one in Seattle too. So the Theosophical Library on Capitol Hill, behind the Quest Bookstore, has a great library, and it has books on anything you can imagine like any subject we have probably one or two books on it if not more well we'll certainly have to check that out we were in we were in you know in, in i was in seattle pretty recently so uh, i'll have to check that out like i'll probably go there maybe like 
next month. Um, so definitely gonna have to keep my eyes open for that. Um, um, so are there any ethical codes that theosophists must follow? So the Theosophical Society, I wouldn't say it's a code that we have to follow, but we go by the three objects, which is to form a nucleus of universal brotherhood of humanity without distinction of race, creed, sex, caste, or color. Uh, two is to encourage comparative study of religion, philosophy, and science. And the third is to investigate unexplained laws of nature and the powers latent in humanity. And that's kind of like every time we do something, uh, we look at those three things and say, like, does this fit with, like, you know, are we, does this fit within what we're trying to do? So, like, if we move as the society, I mean, each person's kind of allowed to do whatever they feel, but these are kind of the core. When we come together, these are what we try to follow. I think that's a perfect segue into our last question here. Um, so, we asked this at the end of uh, the episodes to, to, to all the people uh, to whom we were we interviewed uh we have we've asked you know someone hey what does it mean to be an evangelical christian we asked a reformed rabbi what does it mean to be a jew we asked a um an amadi muslim what does it mean to be an amadi muslim we asked a um a, a baha'i and that video by the way is uh, or that rather that uh, podcast episode that should be coming up very soon it's a legendary one that's not been released but i have all the content just not edited yet but we've asked uh, we asked her what does it mean to be what does it mean to be baha'i so um for you as a member of the theosophical society what does it mean to be a uh Theosophist. So I guess a theosophist, what it means is just to be open and to like truly explore and be honest with your exploration, you know, like try to let go of um, everything that holds you down, like that you don't need and just kind of really embrace what the truths are that you've learned, you know, like, and, and be honest with those truths. Like do not hold on to something because you think it's a truth, like be allowing to let yourself let it go if it no longer becomes a truth. So I'd say that's like the core of being a theosophist. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, that was a very fascinating interview. I, I, I think, I mean, th this is just su such a fascinating um, society. I've been, you know, I, th I think this is an excellent, one of the excellent, an excellent way to have some of the last episodes of this season because it, it in many ways glues together the other religious and spiritual traditions or um, rather perhaps not glues them together, sort of collects them into one uh, society. Um, and uh, there is no religion higher than truth. That, that is an amazing uh, motto for the society. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Mr. Graham, for joining us. And um, this has been the Godcast. I'm Xavier. I'm Rylan. And I'm Balin. I'm Graham. And stay tuned for planned future episodes.